Acts 10, verses 1 through 16. And it reads, At Caesarea there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion, of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius, and he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. And now send man to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants and a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. And he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten, eaten, eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Amen. When our kids were younger, we, we used to love to watch Little House on the Prairie. Isn't that right, Jan? No. Anybody else like Little House on the Prairie? Amen. Amen. Turn Jam on. Turn Jam on to that, Ben. Watch Little House on the Prairie, and then in, uh, in Walnut Grove, there was this, there was a one-room schoolhouse where all the kids met for school, but on Sunday, the one-room schoolhouse became the church, and that's where they met for the service. The, the preacher there was Reverend Alden. Remember that, Al? And one of, one of Reverend Alden's favorite hymns that they would sing over and over again on Little House on the Prairie was Bringing in the Sheaves. Remember that? Bringing in the sheaves. How many remember that hymn? All right, we got some. We got some saints here this morning. <laughs> sowing in the morning, sowing seeds of kindness, sowing in the noon time and the early eve, waiting for the harvest and the time of reaping. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. We don't sing that anymore, but um, what a glorious song that is! Bringing in the sheaves. Bringing in the sheaves. Now we sing Psalm 126. Because that's what that hymn is based upon. Psalm 126. Where the Bible says, He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Bringing in the sheaves. Bringing in the sheaves. We shall come rejoicing, bringing in the sheaves. It was a reminder of the blessedness of, of harvest time. And the church, the church understood 
that what was being spoken of there was a reference to the harvest as a reminder of the promises of God to bless her efforts in sharing and preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when you sow the seeds of the gospel, that that God would allow you to, to come in rejoicing, bringing in the harvest, the harvest of souls, bringing in the sheaves. God's design from the very beginning, beloved, was a spiritual harvest, the harvest of which it would be a number for which no man could number. In fact, Jesus told his disciples just that when he was teaching them. He, he told them, didn't he, in, John, in Matthew chapter 9 and, and verse 34 and, and following, that they should be praying for laborers to go out in the harvest because the harvest was ready. The sheaves were being prepared. And it was time to bring this in. And this was particularly true in the early church as the gospel went forth. As the gospel went forth, what they began to see was the fulfillment of the promise that God promised them and that they would have a harvest in bringing in the sheaves. Particularly true as the church began to spread out and the gospel went beyond Jerusalem. And Samaria. And now as we come into Acts in chapter 10, even to the Gentile parts of the world. Coming to Acts chapter 10 and chapter 10, we come to the last of the really big three events in the book of Acts. Game-changing moments in the life and the ministry of the church. The first one was Pentecost, right, where the promised Holy Spirit came and and the church received and experienced the power of the Holy Spirit. The second was the conversion of Saul, where he who once persecuted Christ is now set for the defense of Christ. But the third event here in Acts chapter 10 Well, the gospel comes unmistakably and with power to the Gentile world. So important were these events, the the Holy Spirit coming at Pentecost, the the conversion of of Saul, and the, the gospel coming to the Gentiles, that these events would be rehearsed again and again as you read through the book of Acts. These were monumental happenings. And they changed the course of history. In fact, the ramification of these events was felt powerfully and is still being felt throughout the world today. Until now, as we've been reading in Acts, the church had been primarily a Jewish church. Primarily filled with with Jews. There were a few Samaritans thrown in there, and there were a few foreigners from different parts. But by and large, it was a Jewish fellowship. But but now, this was about to change. 
you might say that God was going to do a new thing. And you could say that except he had promised that he would do this. And if it's new, it had been only new to you. But this had been God's plan from the very beginning. But you do understand that God intended for his people from the very beginning to be a people of all nations. It's what he promised to Abraham in, in, in Genesis chapter 12. He said, you would be a blessing not just to your people, Abraham, but you'd be a blessing to the nations. You see this in Psalm 2. You see it in Isaiah 2. You see it again and again throughout the scriptures in Isaiah 56. God says that my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations. It's always been God's design for the nations, for people from every tongue and tribe and nation. This is what Jesus told his disciples in John chapter 10 and verse 16. When he told them that I have other sheep not of this fold, I must bring them in also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. One flock, one shepherd. Now, some people today would like to try to convince us and insist that God has two people, that God has Jewish nation, and God has the church. But what we see in the promise of John chapter 10 and verse 16, and what we see fulfilled here in Acts chapter 10 is that God has one people. God has one flock. God has one bride. Why? Because there is only one Lord, there is only one groom, there is only one shepherd. They all belong to one house. And this here, this morning, is what our text is going to remind us. It's going to remind us that though God gave two visions, there was only one flock. Though there were two visions, God's design from the beginning has always been Only one people, one people, one people. And we see this worked out in these two visions. And in these visions, we see God dealing with Cornelius, this Gentile, and dealing with Peter, this Jew. A vision to the Gentile, a vision to the Jew, but there's only one goal. Because there's only going to be one people. happened in that first vision. In the first vision, God sought Cornelius. And in the second vision, God taught Peter. In the first vision, he sought Cornelius. In the second vision, he taught Peter. In the first vision, he sought Cornelius so that there might be one people. In the second vision, he taught Peter so that Peter would understand that there is only one Let's look at this first vision. God sought Cornelius. Cornelius was not Jewish. He was a Gentile. It's obvious from the text. He was 
The Bible says an officer in the Roman army. He was one of authority. He had men under him. He was not Jewish. And yet, he was called devout. He was a devout man, meaning that he was a pious man, that he was religiously thoughtful, that he thought seriously about religious things, that he concerned himself with who God is. And he feared God, the Bible says. He feared God. He was a pious man. He was devout. He he feared God. He knew that there was a God. But he was not Jewish. He had not been incorporated into the Jewish community. He was not circumcised. He had not received any other prerequisite washings or baptisms necessary to be incorporated into the Jewish community. And yet, though he was not Jewish, he believed in God, and he sought to worship God. He attended the synagogue. He he went to the temple. He, He attended prayers. He sought to perform good works. Sought to be a good man. He sought God. What he knew about God caused him to want to know more. What he heard about God caused him to want to learn and hear more. He sought God in prayer. He sought God in serving. He sought God in worship. Here's the truth of the matter, beloved. No one seeks God except that God first has sought him. Now, this is important to understand. It's important to understand, particularly in light of what the Bible says in other places, like Romans chapter 3 and verse 11, where it tells us plainly that no one seeks after God. And we have all gone astray, each to his own way. No one seeks after God until God seeks after him. A.W. Tozer, in that wonderful little book that perhaps most of you have, if you don't, you should run out and get it, The Pursuit of God, says, before man can seek God, God must first have sought him. This is so true, beloved. It is God who does the initiating. It is God who does the seeking. And what God does in seeking us and what God does in seeking people is he changes hearts. So now those hearts that were running away from God, now those hearts seek after God. And when people seek God sincerely, God delights to reveal himself. It's what he does. He delights to reveal himself. The Bible says in verse 4 of chapter 10 that at the hour of prayer, Cornelius receives a vision from God in which an angel says to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended. 
as a memorial before God. God has delighted to not only reveal himself in your heart, but now he is delighted to honor that you are now seeking him. This is so, so, so important because the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 55 and verse 6 that you you should seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon the Lord while he is near. And this seeking of God in our hearts is put there for the purpose of God revealing himself to us. Do you understand that this is why we send missionaries? This is why God delights to send missionaries. God sends missionaries to peoples whose hearts he has prepared to receive the missionary. He has ordained people to receive the gospel, and then he ordains people to go and take the gospel to the people he has ordained to receive it. People seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon the Lord while he is near. And you know what happens? God delights. God delights to reward those who seek him. In Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 6, the Bible tells us that God rewards those who seek him. And what does he reward them with? He rewards them with himself. He reveals himself to them. And this is what he's going to do with Cornelius. He is going to reveal to Cornelius what Cornelius has been seeking after, and that is the full revelation of who God is in Christ Jesus. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon. While he is near. This is a message to us this morning. This idea of seeking the Lord. Beloved, if you are here this morning. And you are interested in spiritual things. But you are not totally confident. That you really, really know the Lord. This morning. This morning, the Lord is saying to you. Seek him while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. You say, how do I seek the Lord? You seek the Lord like Cornelius did. You seek him in prayer. You get on your knees and you delight to go to God and speak to God and ask God to reveal himself to you. And God is faithful. Isn't it interesting that that these two visions were given to men who were diligently praying? Because God delights to reveal himself to those who would humble themselves before him and pour out their hearts to him to know him. Lord, I want to know you. I want you to reveal yourself to me. Open my mind and my heart and my eyes to the truths that are available in Christ Jesus. He will do that. He will do that. But you not only seek him in prayer, you seek him in worship. I mean, there's a lot of things you may not know, but you just come. There's a lot of things you may not understand, but you're not going to understand them sitting at home. You need to come. 
Come into the community of the fellowship. Come into the fellowship of believers. Come and sing the songs of Zion and hear the word of God proclaimed. And you will find that God delights to speak to your heart and open your eyes to the truth that you are seeking for. You seek the Lord in prayer. You seek the Lord in worship. You seek the Lord in giving and serving. Give of yourself to others. Give of your time and your treasure and your talent. And you will find that there is Christ delighting to reveal himself, who he is and what he desires for you to do. Often, often amazed that people ask the question, well, I don't know what God wants me to do. Yeah, but you're just sitting there doing nothing. There's opportunities to do something, to serve, to to give. And this is Cornelius. He is giving. He is giving alms. He is serving others. And in the midst of him serving others, the Bible says that God sees his service and is pleased to reveal himself to him. You want to know God? Get up and serve others. Get up. And give your time to others. See if God doesn't delight to reveal himself to you. You seek God ultimately, though, beloved, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus said in John chapter 14 and verse 6 that no one comes to the Father but through This is the grand revelation that comes to all those who diligently seek after God. Ultimately, you come to the realization that you can have no portion in God except you have your portion in Jesus. This is what Cornelius is going to come to understand. This is the revelation and the mystery of the gospel that's going to be later on revealed to him. This is what he sought to know, that God in Christ Jesus had come into the world to reconcile Cornelius unto God. Cornelius thought he was seeking God. But you know what? Actually, it was God who was seeking Cornelius. That's how it always is, isn't it? We always think it's us. We always think it's us. We always think it's us doing. We always think it's us going. We always think it's us. We always think we found Jesus. Jesus was never lost. The songwriter said it right. I sought the Lord and afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. So true, so true. And those who seek the Lord, God delights to reward those who seek him. And he rewarded Cornelius 
not only with a vision, but he rewarded him with grace. With grace. Grace is coming to your household, Kenise. And it's coming by way of my servant, Peter. But first, I have to teach him a thing or two. I have to teach him a thing or two. And so not only did God seek Cornelius, but God had to teach Peter. And this is what he did in the second vision. And before, you know, Cornelius, after he receives this vision, the Bible says that, that um, Cornelius sent men. He sent his men to search out this Peter that was told to him that he needed to find. And his men go and look for this Peter and search out this Peter. But before Cornelius' men could get to Peter, God would get to Peter. God was out in front of this thing, beloved, as he always is. And before Cornelius' men arrived, God met with Peter. Had to teach Peter a few things. He had to teach Peter a few things because, beloved, Like some of us and many of us, Peter was raised in a segregated society. Segregated society and nothing epitomized this segregation like the divide between Jew and Gentile. And if the gospel... If the gospel was going to conquer the world, it would have to bridge the divide between Jew and Gentile. It was going to have to bridge the divide between these two people. And God knew that it was going to have to start with the apostles. It's going to start with the apostles. Now here is Peter. Peter, he's hanging out in Joppa. He's hanging out in Joppa because he just performed these wonderful miracles. Just healed Aeneas, just raised Dorcas. You can imagine that he's flying high on what God is doing in the ministry of the church. You can imagine that everybody around him is feeling pretty good because of the miracles and the signs that are going on and the proclamation of the gospel that is happening. But, beloved, you do understand and we must get in our minds and understanding that the ministry of the church is not primarily miracles and signs. That is not first and foremost on God's agenda. The primary ministry of the church is not miracles and signs. The primary ministry of the church is reconciliation. It's reconciliation. It's what the church has been granted to do. It's what it tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and, and verse 18. For the gospel is this, God in Christ Jesus reconciling the world to himself and then giving to us, the church, the ministry of reconciliation. That's the primary ministry of the church, is to reconcile people to God and reconcile people to each other. And nowhere, nowhere would this power of reconciliation be more evident 
than between Jew and Gentile. Now for us, it's hard for us to imagine just how, how deep this breach was between Jew and Gentile. When we think of cultural and, and racial animosity, we normally, our minds normally go between black people and white people in the United States and other parts of the, of the world. But what we think as animus and, and hatred and strife between black people and white people Nothing compared to what it was between Jew and Gentile. Doesn't even compare, beloved. The separation between Jew and Gentile in biblical times was great, and not only was it great, but it was accepted. They didn't live together, they didn't eat together, they didn't worship together. The synagogue was segregated, the temple was segregated. William Barclay, a commentator, says, Until Christ came, the Gentiles were object of contempt to the Jews. The barrier between them was absolute. If a Jewish boy married a Gentile girl, or if a Jewish girl married a Gentile boy, the funeral for that boy or girl was carried out. Such contact with a Gentile was equivalent to death. They had a funeral right after the wedding. F.F. Bruce, another commentator, said, No iron curtain, color bar, class distinction on national frontier of today is more absolute than the cleavage between Jew and Gentile was in antiquity. And this is because, beloved, the, the Jewish people had forgotten or they had failed to understand, or they had mistaken God's favor for favoritism. And they had become culturally and racially proud and, and spiritually proud. And this caused them to despise the Gentiles. John Stott said, no Orthodox Jew would ever enter the home of a Gentile. Even a God-fearer. Or even invite such a one to his home. On the contrary, all familiar intercourse with Jews and Gentiles was forbidden. And no pious Jew would, of course, have sat down at the table of a Gentile. Accepting, accepting Gentiles into full communion of the church of this early church was a huge hurdle to get over. A huge hurdle. It was bigger than all the persecution that they had received. It was going to be harder than even receiving Saul into the fellowship. Receiving into full communion these Gentiles. Like I said before, up until now, the church had been primarily Jewish. Like I said, a few Samaritans, but they were half Jews. And a few foreigners, but by and large, it was Jewish. And here, beloved, is the issue. Not only was it Jewish, but the disciples and the apostles were comfortable with it. It's the way they wanted it. 
That's the way God wanted it. And they were comfortable with it. And what God was about to do is what God always does. He makes his people uncomfortable. Those who are comforted need to be uncomfortable. He makes his people uncomfortable. The early church was comfortable with division. Today, the church still remains comfortable with those divisions. The church remains comfortable with its cultural and racial divisions. But, beloved, if you desire, if you desire to have God's, uh, uh, God's agenda, if you desire to be shaken out of your comfort zone, and you should, for the glory of God among the nations, then God will do for you what he did for Peter. And I pray he does. Pray he does it for us here at East Point Church, but even more than that, I pray he does it for the church at large as a whole, for the body of Christ. when the gospel really comes and you really understand it and it takes priority in your life. There's three things that's going to happen. It happened to Peter. It'll happen to you. It happened to the church. It happened to all of us. First of all, you're going to see what you wouldn't naturally see. You're going to do what you would not naturally do. And you're going to say what you would not naturally say. And this is what happened in this vision. Peter's, Peter goes up on a rooftop to pray. His prayer time, like Cornelius, isn't it interesting that God likes to reveal himself to people who would pray? Peter's doing the righteous and pious thing. He goes up on the rooftop and he begins to pray. But in the midst of the prayer... Peter is reminded that he is hungry. He is hungry. Now, very few of us can pray when we're hungry. That's why very few of us fast and pray. We just pray. Hello. But that's for another sermon. Alan. <laughs> Peter is praying and he realizes that he is hungry. And perhaps he realizes he is hungry because they are beginning to prepare the food. And he begins to smell the food and he realizes that he is hungry. And isn't it just like God to begin to reveal himself and convict Peter at that very point which is most readily on his mind? He could have used any illustration to demonstrate his glory for the nations to Peter. Now, Peter's hungry. So God uses food. He uses food. In this vision, as Peter's praying, he has this vision of a sheet that comes down from heaven. And on this sheet, beloved, is all kinds of animals, reptiles, birds. On this sheet is kosher and non-kosher animals. 
on this sheet is clean and unclean beast. There was a pig next to a lamb. There was a chicken next to a rabbit. There was some shrimp. And there was some catfish next to redfish. There was a cow. And there was some crawfish. Now, Peter couldn't believe what he was seeing. He couldn't believe what he was seeing. This shouldn't be. These things shouldn't be together. These things don't go together. These things can't get along. You shouldn't have these things on the same table. You shouldn't have these meats in the same house. They shouldn't be in the same vision. Couldn't believe what he was seeing. But you know what? God says not only do they go together, but Peter, they are good together. Not only do they go together, Peter, but they are good together. Rise, kill, and eat. Now, what God was doing here, beloved, God was showing Peter that not only can the Jews and the Gentiles be together, but it is good for them to be together. He is showing Peter, Peter, what I am doing is building a church where crawfish and cows are going to be in the same building. I am building a church where you will find shrimp and lamb sitting next to one another. I am building a church where you go to eat Peter, and there you will find the goat, and there you would also find barbecue hog. You're going to find it all. You're going to see things, Peter, that you would not naturally see. Because that's what the gospel does. It causes you, it should cause you to see things that you would not naturally see. People from various cultures and backgrounds lifting their voices in praise to the one true God. People of various cultures and backgrounds and experiences making up a church that bows the knee together and gives of their time and themselves to each other. Here's, I've never seen anything like this in my life. That's what people ought to say when they come to church. I've seen anything like this in my life. Black people, white people, Hispanic people, Asian people, all together singing the praises, joining arm in arm, loving one another, caring for one another, living with one another in community, prioritizing each other's lives. Are you kidding me? We live in one of the most segregated cities in the country. You do know that, don't you? You do know that, don't you? Very few of us actually live in mixed communities. Think about it. Black people choose to live with black people. White people choose to live with white people. 
That's Atlanta. The new city of the south, the city that's too busy to hate. Such should not be the case that when people come into the church, when they come into the church, they would see the glory of God in the nations. You see in the church the things that you would not naturally see. That's what he showed Peter. You're going to see things that you would not naturally see. But not only are you going to see things that you would not naturally see, and Peter, you're going to do some things that you would not naturally do. After Peter saw that sheet spread with all manner of animals and beasts, you know he was thinking in his mind, what in the world am I supposed to do with that? And the voice says, I'll tell you what you're supposed to do with that. Rise, kill, and eat it. What? First of all, I don't even want to look at it. Rise, kill, and eat. And what does Peter say? Like most of us, he says, no way, Lord. By no means, Lord, no, Lord. Do you know that rarely, if ever, the words no and Lord should be in the same sentence? But too often they are. Peter had a penchant for it, didn't he? Matthew chapter 16, he said, no, Lord, forbid, that ain't going to happen. In John chapter 13, again, he said, no way, Lord, that ain't going to happen. No, Lord. Had a penchant like most of us for saying no, to the things of God. But Peter would never think of eating such things. But beloved, this is just what the gospel does. It commands you to do what you would not naturally do. You wouldn't naturally do that. And Peter, the reason why Peter said, no, Lord. Is because Peter was gripped by his culture. He was gripped by his experience. His heritage and experience caused him to do what was most comfortable, and that's all he wanted to do. We're no different. You do know that. He's just like us. Blacks want to sit with blacks. White people want to worship with white people. Someone asked me recently, why is the church still so segregated? I said, well, it's really simple. It's not because there's a sign out there that said black only or white only. You know why the church is still segregated? It's because we want to be with people like ourselves. If we're black, we think, quote, unquote, our people are black people. If we're white, we think that our people are white people. If we're Hispanic, we think that our people are Hispanic people. And racial and cultural segregation is a natural, natural, natural thing. In most schools, you go into most public schools, you go into the lunchroom, Guess what you're going to find? The vast majority of them. White kids sitting over there. Black kids sitting over there. Naturally. 
Segregation is a natural thing. It belongs to the natural order. It is what the flesh naturally does. But we are not those who walk in the natural. We are not those who are governed and guided by our flesh. So that I understand that black people are not, quote, unquote, my people. God's people are my people. When the gospel becomes real to you, then you do what you would not naturally do. You worship with those you would not naturally worship with. Do what is supernatural. You embrace the diversity and the glory of God. Your church and your life. Not just your church, beloved. This is not something that just happens on Sunday. When the gospel really makes a difference, your life becomes more diverse. You live to the glory of God. Your church and your life becomes diverse and multicultural, and not because you designed it, but because God did. Because you don't say no, Lord. You say yes, Lord. When the Lord says, go there, you say, yes, Lord. When the Lord said, worship here, you say, yes, Lord. When the Lord says, embrace them, you say, yes, Lord. When others around you are asking you, why would you do that? Why would you go there? Why would you be with them? You say, I go where God says go. I do what God says do. Because. I delight to rise up, kill, and eat. Yes, Lord. I'll rise up. I'll kill. And I'll eat at your table of diversity. I will eat at your multicultural table. And it will be my delight to do it. Yes, Lord. But not only will you see what you would not naturally see, not only will you do what you would not naturally do, but you will say what you wouldn't naturally say. For when the Lord told Peter to rise and to eat, Peter said, no way. I've never eaten anything uncommon or anything common or unclean. And the voice responded, what God had made clean Do not call unclean. In other words, Peter, shut up and call it like God calls it. Because you're going to say what you would not naturally say. Peter called those foods unclean because he had always called them unclean. He called them unclean because his mother called them unclean. He called them unclean because his father called them unclean. That's what they called them at school. At school, they said, 
those are unclean. So naturally, when he sees it, he says, that's unclean. My mama didn't associate with them. My granddaddy and daddy didn't associate with them. We didn't have many of those in our school. He's always called them unclean. But beloved, what matters is not what others say. It's not what the world says. It's not even what your own heart says. What matters is what God says. What God says. Someone has, has said, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. And someone else said, no. God says it, and that settles it, whether you believe it or not. Your believing doesn't settle it. God saying it settles it. And this is what he's saying to Peter. Don't you dare call unclean what I call clean. Don't you dare call common what I have determined to be sanctified and holy and proper for use and fellowship. This is so important, beloved, that you understand. Because all of us come from cultural experiences that dictate how we perceive and understand the world. And coming into Christ and the gospel, what God does is he reorients our understanding and how we interpret the world. And so now, believe it or not, whether you like it or not, the primary lens through which I must try to understand and interpret the world is not as a black man, but as a Christian man. Peter, stop looking through your Jewish eyes and look with the eyes of Christ. When you see with the eyes of Christ and you say what God says, those are my brothers and sisters. They may be a little different shade. They may come from a little very different background and their cultural And the way that they say things and express things may not be exactly the way that I want to express them. But when I'm looking with the eyes of Christ, and I'm looking with the eyes of the heart, I see one given over to the things of God. I see the brothers and sisters who are are in the household of faith with me and fellow citizens in the household of God. I see brothers and sisters who are going to be with me now, but ultimately will spend all eternity with me in the presence of Christ. So the question is, whose report are you going to believe? Whose report will you believe? Question is, when God says those are your brothers and sisters and the world says, no, these are my brothers and sisters, whose report are you going to believe? Beloved, it's always necessary. It's always important to remind ourselves that we got to say what God says. 
And it is not natural to say the things of God. You say God things supernaturally. And when you do, the world won't understand. Friends won't understand. Can you imagine Peter going back to his family and saying, the Gentiles are clean. We can have some pork. I'm going to pick up some shrimp. They always told me it was good. <laughs> Whose report are you going to believe? But not only are you, do you need to believe God's report when he begins to break down the cultural barriers and experiences of your life and to bring you into fellowship with people you would not naturally be in fellowship with, but you must also believe the report that God says about you in Christ Jesus. You got to say the thing that God says. So when the enemy tells you that you're not forgiven and God says you are forgiven, who are you going to believe? When the enemy tells you and your sin reminds you that you are not free, but then the Bible says and God says and in Christ Jesus you are free and whom the Son set free, it's free indeed. Who are you going to believe? We must believe. The report of the Lord. And it's not easy. It's not easy. You know why? I know it's not easy. Personally, I know it's not easy. But don't take my word for it. Just look at the text. It's not easy because Peter had to do that, that. That had to go on three times. How many times does God have to show you this? How many times does God have to say it? Shouldn't once be enough. Here's the grace and mercy of God. He does this for Peter three times. So important is this issue that it was spoken to Peter three times. Three times he had to hear that the gospel overcomes your prejudices. Three times he had to hear that. And you know what? It still didn't sink totally in as we are reminded in Galatians chapter 2. And Paul had to rebuke him. You know we're no different. How many times? How many times? Three times. Three times he had to hear that Christ had broken down the wall of separation between cultures. And ethnicities. Three times, three times he had to hear that there was no longer Jew or Gentile, black or white, or slave or free. That all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That all had been cleansed by the blood of Christ, and all those who come unto him by faith have been cleansed. Three times. He had to be reminded that God doesn't have a white church and a black church, a Jewish church, and a Gentile church. But God has one church, one people who worship the one true Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Three times Peter had to hear this. How many, how many times will it take for us? How many times will it take for you? What will it take for me? Until we stop 
speaking like the world speaks. Let's start speaking like God. How many times do we have to hear it before we start seeing things like God sees them? How many times before we start doing like God wants us to do? Once again, it reminded us this morning, this is the difference that knowing Christ makes. How many times do we need to hear it before we change? How many more? Let's pray.